Welcome to my passion project, the Bold Flavors Podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we're currently delivering over 1 million meals every single week in the UK. We are a data company that loves food and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect in-depth conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is about sharing some of these experiences with you. Today I'm talking to Sian, whom I met a long time ago. He's one of the most analytical marketeers I know, super smart and very tech and data driven. He's seen rapid growth over his seven years at Secret Escapes, first owning marketing and then product and data. A few weeks ago, he joined TransferWise as their chief marketing officer and conveniently they rebranded to Wise on the day he joined. In today's episode, Sian will talk about how his brain got shaped by what he studied, how he believes in karma and serendipity, how as an introvert he found the leadership journey really difficult initially, and how he thinks about marketing more broadly. Sian, super excited to have you on this podcast. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. We've met a few times and I can't wait to deep dive into the hyper growth you've seen at Secret Escapes and now at Wise. But first, tell me where you grew up. I worked with Tom at Secret Escapes and Nilan at TransferWise. So some of my stories will reflect a little bit of their stories. Um, so I was I grew up in London. So similar to Nilan, I, I, my parents are Sri Lankan. Came over here in the 70s, grew up in London. Um, I had, you know, one of those childhoods which was very in lots of areas allowed me to sort of express myself so i think you know in the era of technology my dad always allowed me to have access to computers which was kind of uh, a privilege in the 80s mm-hmm. but it was like you know the very first 8-bit computers all the way through to pcs they were all i think he just knew there was something in this computer thing so we i always had the ability to tinker play with hardware build computers pretty sure i think that's what my parents think i still do now (laughs) i work in it something like that you know all the way through just to being close to the evolution of the internet i remember downloading mosaic and going to my dad there's this thing called the web and they're like links you can click on and it's like you can get the football scores on that rather than on television this is amazing and that was always really encouraged i think in our house around like technology is something that's going to be great and an enabler and for me to be close to it my dad had his own business and i helped there you know using the computers to do accounting and you know designing catalogs so just got real exposure to to tech oh wow okay food uh my mom is a great cook she got me into it as a child there were lots of cookery books around i remember staring at the reader's digest compendium at pictures of cabbages and <laughs> uh, you know, beautifully illustrated pictures of ingredients, which like in the 80s when food came in boxes, it was amazing to see that food was made of food, right? 
so I started cooking at well, it's, it's Food obviously is still coming in boxes, um, but I yes. guess different types of boxes, yeah. But your boxes has <laughs> ingredients in it rather than, you know, a, a ready-made meal in it. Um, yeah. You know, because this Delia age, you know, there was not, you know, that, that period Jamie hadn't really turned up uh, sort of to change things. So, yeah, food was a great big part of that culture. You know, my, my parents spared me curry, so I was perceived as being weak in terms of surviving uh, any sort of spicy food but uh, you know my best friend was one of my good friends was japanese we had korean neighbors like real exposure to um, sort of global food another area i guess was books i'm sure everyone loves books i'm a real i don't know at the time I, my brother was six years younger than me so i was pretty much sort of that only child for that early period and Love books for just escaping. So I still like a voracious reader. I read a lot of children's books, actually. My daughter brings the quality of children's book writing is amazing at the moment. Mm. So I read most of what she reads. Um, but also knowledge, because I think this people, I don't know, you forget that pre-internet, to find out a fact was very difficult. I remember being asked by school, like, what is the tallest mountain in America? And either you ask your uncle, who just lies to you, he's like, it is the big horn. And you're like, can't be big horn. Is that a mountain? And then you, he's like, no, no, you must trust me. And then you do it and you get a D. Or you have to go to a library, right? And find a Britannica and pray to God it's up to date. So that thirst for knowledge was really just because of requirements, right, of that period that, you know, books had information and knowledge you could just go and discover, which was, um, yeah, super awesome. And then similar to Tom, I'm going to steal his, like, we're real... Obviously, from Sri Lanka, we used to go back a lot as a child. It's very, ex ex having grown up in Britain, very exotic, as it were, to go to a place with poverty, but amazing uh, culture and, and sort of uh, experiences. But it was at war, right? So it was mm -hmm. like, you know, and it was in your face. Um, there were, you know, terrorist attacks and people with guns around a lot. It was just a little bit scary to go back. Um, but a lot of my family were in the US. So we used to go to West Coast a lot. As in the, again, in the 80s, it was a little bit novel to be the kid who used to go to Disneyland in California, um, which was like just awesome. So family there, real like appreciation for US culture. My best friend here at the time was American. We used to watch loads of inappropriate American comedies like Caddyshack and Stripes. And Eddie Murphy at seven was probably a little bit inappropriate. <laughs> I didn't get the jokes, but I got the swearing. So absolutely <laughs> amazing. Real London, I, I, I often could have moved abroad and, and worked abroad, but really um, felt London was my home. And then was fine. I think I discovered through school and university, it was always scary to discover you weren't the smartest kid in the room when you went up the next level. And that was a challenge for me. I guess it sort of reflects my journey through my career that you have to just work out, you always kind of work out what you're good at. And it's always quite a period of self-reflection when you realize there are people who are smarter than you, better sport than you, naturally more talented X than you. And you're kind of like, where, where do I fit in? Like, what's my thing? So I didn't really know what I was doing through school and had the opportunity. I was like the last kid on the list to potentially apply to go to Oxbridge. And I was like, nah, like, I don't, I don't really know what I want to do. And all the smart kids were doing their step levels and getting coached for Oxbridge and doing, you know, every extra curricular activity you can imagine. And you get these moments where one teacher kind of just sees a bit of, believes in you, right? Mm. And one teacher was like, see, just go to an open day. Like, I know you're not thinking about this. Just go to an open day, just have a look. And I went up to John's, which is like an incredibly sporty academic and uh, quite posh university, uh, college at Cambridge. And I was like, 
there's something there's depth there's it's like not even harry potter like right <laughs> there's like such steeped history and it was i just blew my mind i was like i'm gonna how do i get in here this is awesome i want to try and go to this place and i think it was just that teacher who kind of just pushes you sees your potential when it's often quite hard to see that in yourself and uh push me to apply and actually in the, it turned out i was like only one of a couple of people all the people you expected to get into oxford didn't get into and i was the most unexpected person to get in so much so my german teacher checked he was like you cannot have got an a it's impossible like all you know is swear words and types of sausages i'm going to check with the examination board and i was the bottom a in the country um, <laughs> But yeah, I got it, and it was uh, yeah. So sounds like you had a very, very kind of supportive, encouraging um, childhood, which instilled, I guess, you know, a sense of entrepreneurship, focus on technology, but I guess hard work. Your dad was an entrepreneur. Yeah. And so, what did you then decide to study at university? So I'd done for some bizarre reason double maths, French, and German. And everyone's like, wow. what are you doing with that? And I'm not a natural linguist. Well, I mean, I, I get the German, of course, but... <laughs> yeah, it's the best language. I love it. Because you always put the verb at the end. So there's always a sense of suspense as you sort of listen to a sentence. You're like, what verb is going to complete this action? <laughs> um, I picked economics purely because my parents were like, go and be a banker to do economics. I was like, okay. And in my heart, I had a real creative streak because I used to um, draw a lot and write a lot and um, I just didn't know what to do with that. So I thought, I'll just do economics. It seems quite like, uh, if I'm going to be a banker, I'll do economics. <laughs> and it turned out to be the best choice because I think a lot of people's brains are shaped by the degree they take. Uh, you know, when I talk to Nilan, I can tell he did maths. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yep. yep, exactly. And I just found that that, that subject really resonated with me about how to think about big problems small problems trade-offs human behavior like how it's such a both academic subject but also a framework-based subject it really sort of set or resonated with me and Cambridge is a very strange place to go to like on reflection because like there are four types of people in Cambridge they're like the people who are so clever you walk in you're like I, I read this is terrifying and they end up when you look 20 years later to be changing the world like Eben invented Raspberry Pi you've got people who are like you know working for the eBay founder to, to sort out philanthropy like just great people who are so clever you know they can have impact on the world there's a group of people who are so creative that it's not surprising when you see them today in like movie trailers or in like the credits of TV shows or producing all the comedy for BBC You get people who are so, for me, like posh was a very strange reality because I thought people at public school or private school would be posh. But at Cambridge, you have people who are lords. And then, yeah, I think the year above me was the Earl of Devon. And he literally lives in a castle. He lives in, he's like a big castle as well. Um, and then you get the like incredibly gifted athletes and musicians. And I was like straight up, none of the above. I remember starting going, I've made a terrible mistake uh comparing myself to all these people here but I had a great time i think you have to like and i think the sort of common thread was about creating a network of people which i've sort of taken all the way through my career like i wanted to make sure i knew a lot of people because i knew these people would go and do great things and i just wanted to make sure I'd, i made the most of this opportunity that i had uh, in that environment what was your first job then 
Uh, well, I couldn't get a job. I did a year at the Judge Institute to do like a little, I thought, oh, I should probably, if I do like an MBA type thing, then I can be a businessman. And I did that. <laughs> I did a, that sort of like lightweight MBA my fourth year, left, couldn't get a job. I was uh, in a call center um, doing pizza. I was pretty good at it, actually. So if nice. anyone needs a call center rep, I'm good at inbound. When, when was uh, that? Um, so I finished in 2000. Mm-hmm. That was my last year. And then, yeah, 2001. You know, I was just very sort of assumed management consultancy and banking was default. With no heart in my soul, I applied for them all and unsurprisingly got rejected. And then a friend of mine, Sonny, who's, you know, one of the guys I really respect and he's sort of doing amazing work, uh, said, I've just joined a company called Capital One up in Nottingham. And everyone here is amazing. And what they're doing is amazing. You should come work here. And he was so eloquent about why it was a great organization um, in terms of their approach to marketing. I was like, I want to work there. And also Nottingham is a super fun town. Right? Mm. So after three, four years in Cambridge, it was strange. I'll move to Nottingham. So I worked actually for a marketing person in data warehousing, which is a little bit dry. But what you got exposed to at Capital One was, I feel, I'm feeling like a lot of resonance with WISE, an organization which feels like like a constellation of startups being run by incredibly talented young people. I was not one of them, but I could see these people. I could see these guys. And I still like, in terms of like my network, I've they I've stayed in touch with most of them. I've seen them go on to do amazing work. And that, that sort of cohort of the Capital One crew from that era are have been, you know, incredibly impressive to go and watch. Um, and from a marketing point of view, you know, you have to imagine this is very nascent digital advertising. I mean, Google had been around a couple of years. So for a direct response advertiser, it was direct mail. But that's what they were doing, sending a lot of post. Creative testing was testing what the envelope looked like. Or sometimes they used to stick a pen inside so people would get curious. And they were like, what is this? I'm like, it's a pen. Like, it's not a carrot or something. Like, it's going to be a pen. But it would increase the literal open rates of... Uh, physical mail but the way capital one nested technology data marketing this level of smarts was again foundational to my approach uh, similar to the economics degree uh, that experience was um, hugely valuable well, really really fascinating um to get exposed to you know scalonomics ltv like, you know yeah. all these topics like at, at such an early um stage yeah. in your career absolutely and, why did you then decide to leave and where did you go? So again, this comes down to like, I think my broad theme has been this sort of, um, in my career, when people ask me to explain it, it's like this, I think in physics, it's the Brownian motion, the random walk, the sort of serendipitous navigation of the stream of, of career. Um, and a lot of it has to do with who you meet and uh, and how your paths cross. So a couple of my friends had, had joined a startup. I mean, it's very weird to think of startups in london in 2003 in the credit card industry i joined them and it had been acquired by lloyd's tsb and to be fair i did not enjoy myself like after the first six months i was like i want to go do something creative i'm going to go and write tv shows or something like that and it took me a long while to put down that creative itch because i think you only discover when you know people who are actually in that industry uh how high the bar is like you've got pretty lame like fart jokes and they have their own tv show and you're like <laughs> no, not quite sure i'm up to this so i sort of put my head down you know it was i did a lot of analysis around acquisition retention again it was just great grounding for 
getting to know really amazing people. Some have been lifelong friends, some I've, I've worked with many times in the following 15 years. But at some point, I was just like, I don't know where I'm going to go next. And out of the blue, um, Claire Johnston from the Up Group, mm-hmm. in our old job, called me up and said, Sian, there's this thing at a company called eBay. Do you know it? I'm like, I love eBay. I buy all sorts of crap on it. Like, <laughs> you can have a job there? Like, She's like, yes. I was like, get me a job at eBay. Like, I hope it's not just posting Beanie Babies. She's like, no, no, no. You can have a proper job there. And that was like a real like inflection point for me. I mean, Tom mentioned sort of that eBay uh, mafia from that era. I, uh, I went into my interview and the person interviewing me was my college mum from university. And that's the person in the year above you. And she did have a look of horror in her face. She's like, you. I'm like, hi, mum. <laughs> She's like, you're terrible. I'm like, I've got better. Like, I'm not a disgraceful uh, lost uh, son of yours. But I was like, you work here? And she's like, yeah, it's amazing. Everyone is badass. And I was like, okay, I need to work here. And it, again, on that sort of, Amer- you know, joining an American business, I think Tom alluded to, it, it is just a very um, sort of best-in-class uh, environment to go and learn, again, as a sort of late 20-year-old person of what scale looks like and be surrounded by the caliber of people that feels very you feel very lucky uh, to be around. So, yeah, and it was also that period of very sort of 2000, 2009, I was there, um, of like the tech scene sort of bubbling in the UK, London, Facebook emerged. And I think one thing, um, there's a chap called Alex Schultz who left eBay to join Facebook. He was VP growth. He grew Facebook from, uh, you know, 100 million users to 5 billion trillion. And the one thing he said to me is that has always sort of resonated was, he's like, Sian, I connect people. I was like, why is that? He's like, if you do that, you increase the probability of good things happening. I was like, that feels like a good thing to do. And obviously he went to work for Facebook, which is like their mantra is connecting people. So that was like perfect for him. I don't think he ever said, I want to topple democracy and tear a hole in the fabric of society. That's a joke, Alex. Don't delete my Instagram accounts. I like Instagram. But then from that point on, I was discovered, like, you know, I, I sort of serendipitously built this network over time and had been lucky to work in organizations where the caliber of people, you just knew they're going to great things. And then at a point I was like, actually, I need to do this proactively. And I need to do it in a way where rather than you trying to create your own network, just get people you think should be friends and talk to each other and click them together. Like, just find opportunities for people, especially in that period where it felt like lots of people were doing interesting stuff, but weren't really connected. Just let people talk to each other. I think Phoebe and friends says there must be selfless good acts. And I think if you believe that, <laughs> like the world, like the karma and fate of increasing the probability of serendipity must be a good thing for you to do and contribute. Mm-hmm. And eventually, like God and the universe pay you back for that. So that was the other thing that I sort of just started doing at that point was really just working out how I could help connect people and also build my own network on the side and, and just make sure especially in that period of the London tech scene where people, it felt like there was an amazing opportunity for amazing people to to work together or just know each other. Uh, It felt like a good thing to do. Yeah, really powerful. And and just staying on eBay for a second, how did you find the culture? Like lots of people I talked to who worked at eBay always say, you know, it's very much in your face, very American. But then after a couple of years, you truly appreciate um, the focus on, the culture, the ownership principles, the the values, um, and the brainwashing that's going on. <laughs> yeah. How, um, in hindsight, are you feeling about it? Oh, I absolutely like 
absolutely love it. You know, I still reference a lot of the values that was brainwashed that were brainwashed into us and stamped on the walls. I felt like it was very galvanizing for the team and created like common principles, which made decision making easier. It was a very um, real family sense to it as well, which, you know, you always look back at being you're very fond of and you want to recreate. So, yeah, I, I think it was incredibly impressive what they built, especially in their mission around enabling when you think about it, enabling individuals to create livelihoods on a platform that never existed and the way they interact with their community very openly um, was very inspiring. So yeah, a lot of their, a uh, lot of what I learned there, I, I've always used um, in my career going forward, similar to things, again, America, big American business, Capital One, a lot of the principles there, you know, you, you take forever. And I think you then left and, You had a couple of, of shorter stints at, you know, ASOS, The Guardian, Essence, um, a few companies. What's kind of the thought process? You know, what did you look for? What didn't you find, I guess, um, before you then joined Secret Escapes and stayed for a long, long time? It's a couple of things. So, you know, you never call in the marketing discipline. You kind of have to self-navigate in that period, especially you have to sort of self-navigate the experiences you need to have to grow as a leader to become a CMO. I think most CMOs prior sort of, not generation, but type of CMOs would have a very traditional route through P&G, an agency, a big FMCG, big brand budgets. That's the, the sort of route. And I was like, I don't know whether I want to be a CMO, but I think there is a route to building an interesting skill set and background where I could be one. Mm -hmm. which required like me bolting on capabilities and experiences to try and grow as a, a leader in that discipline. So it was all very deliberate. I mean, leaving eBay was redundancy. It was, it was very sad to leave. Mm. Um, but you, I really had to just work out how I can, again, and all of these jobs. And at that point, I sort of stopped looking for jobs and just leveraged the people I knew. I just needed to... Um, so I think like Essence, I was like, what is it like to be agency side? What is it like at the time to work on the nascent big data uh, infrastructure, which was coming up? Like I was just, I was like, if I can learn this stuff at this stage, I think this will be helpful. I want to see what actual e-commerce physical retail looked like. Like what is the complexity of selling physical products, uh, especially fashion? Then I was, thought I'll just challenge myself again. I like, let's go to an advertiser funded journal you know on paper challenge business model of journalism which has um you know a lot of complexity about facebook's relationship with facebook and google and do a product role i've never done it i, I want to see what happens when i sort of try product so yeah it was a real like period of exploring what i needed to learn next and then with secret escapes tom had asked talked to me about it early doors and i was like i don't think i'm your zero to 30 guy Call me in two years, maybe. I feel like I will be helpful when you go from 100 to 500 people. And that's what he did. So, yeah, he, he took me for a beer in 2014. Uh, and the other thing is that I work part-time. I've done that for a very long time. Um, so I work four days a week, which I feel is important for me. And I think hopefully it's a good example for, especially for people coming back to work, that you can do a whole job in, in not five days. And... Uh, Yeah, Tom's like, yeah, do you want to do it? You can do four days a week as well. I was like, okay, let's, let's Love do this it. Thing. Amazing. Let's do this and thing. are you are you doing that for family reasons, for yourself? Yeah, so at the time, just to spend, I enjoy hanging out with the kids. Uh, we have just, I just like, I'm just, 
I, I'm into most of the stuff they're into, whether it's TV shows or books. So I like uh, talking about <laughs> the latest episode of Shira. Um, yeah, so a lot of it was around uh, balancing uh, family and, and home, um, which I just it's very hard not to do anymore. So I'm continuing to do that. And I think it's such a powerful message to the organization. If you can do that, you know, anyone can do it. Um, so it's amazing. Uh, well done you um, for role modeling, I guess. Um, <laughs> so you moved away from exploration to exploitation. So you stayed for <laughs> yes. seven, eight years at Secret Escapes. Yeah, almost seven, yeah. So like, how, how was it at the beginning when you joined versus, I guess, today, uh, or right before you left? Yeah terrifying to start with i think it's always terrifying to start a new job i always try and start a new job where i feel like what i know and what i've done before should not be relevant and what you bring to the table is not a playbook or a set of standard things you're going to just roll out but you have to challenge your brain to take those experiences and use them on a new problem so i always find new jobs terrifying because i'm like I'm having to challenge my brain to like step up a gear and, and, and solve this problem. And then, you know, that period is just about be building belief, both in yourself, get your team to believe in the mission, get your team to believe in you, get them to believe in themselves. And you get that through surrounding yourselves with sort of great, you have to like complement your leadership skill with leadership from other people. And those people could be from anywhere in the organization. Like, your boss, someone who works for you. And that's what I found at Secret Escapes was I could leverage the leadership um, across the organization, which was 140 people, probably in the sort of growing up analogy, a spotty teenager. So, you know, a lot of, you know, putting in the principles and frameworks. And I think, you know, you need to bring a philosophy to the table again, rather than the playbook, but still had this amazing energy and, and vibe. And, you know, Tom's leadership was very clear as how he approached things, which was also just very inspirational and directional. And then you just go on this journey, right, for six years. And, you know, you sort of see it back as chapters of certain things you did and just the adventures you had. And at the heart of it, nothing really changed, I don't think, which is good core essence of what the business was about how we made decisions and i guess the philosophy was was always constant it was just the scale was different and to manage scale you have to enable your team to make great decisions and i guess if you wrote a book about the seven years at secret escapes like what would you <laughs> label the chapters like for me there was definitely this um acceleration period the first period i'll just call it acceleration that's a good chapter name where we were launching new markets unlocking new channels building new tv ads scaling the team rapidly dealing with all the uh, second order effects of scale which you have to sort of patch up as you're going along you know you're sort of repairing the car as it's accelerating trying to find the best talent so you can scale as a leader then there was this sort of consolidation where we were just like how do we make a lot of our markets profitable really thinking at a regional level just, just taking a breath how can we actually position our proposition explicitly versus having sort of just discovered it through just our sheer amount of advertising we we're doing and just leading this marketing team that had been oh, 10 people which ended up being 50 You know, I, I walked in saying, I want Secret Escapes to be a place where if you have it on your CV, people know 
this person is excellent at marketing. I, I want this to be a place of a center of excellence that we have delivered great marketing as well as great business uh, growth. Um, and I think we did that across that period. And then the second half, second chapter, I took on other domains. So I ended up running product, data and data science. Uh, and that required me to let go of marketing and entrust leaders within that organization to run that very big, you know, hugely impactful lever and try and learn some new stuff, uh, which was, again, terrifying to start with because, you know, I have no background in product. I can write SQL, but I'm not a data infrastructure person. And uh, I, I think data science is cool, but, you know, I'm no, I'm no modeler. <laughs> so that was the second. And that was like incredibly um, rewarding to be given the chance to stretch my legs in other domains. And what do you think is the um, the common denominator, I guess, of of behaviors and skills you need to display as a leader to succeed in both marketing and data and, and, and product? So I find myself like almost like I'm bilingual. I can talk to marketers, I can write creative briefs, I can discuss you know technical architecture and and write SQL. So it made my life easier in terms of I think it'd be uh, in terms of being able to like have credibility with all those teams i think what they look for in you is being pragmatic understanding the trade-offs that they have to make within their disciplines as well as just making them excited because i think all those teams can get excited about the same thing you just have to package that story a little bit differently for each of those uh, disciplines so i don't think there's a magic secret source of having you make sure that your leadership style works for them all But I think you need to make sure they all understand how they contribute to how the business is growing. And before we go deeper into leadership, I just want to ask uh, on one of the points you made previously, what makes a marketeer excellent in today's world? I think it's a challenging discipline, um, which has got uh, a lot of things you could read about it and try and put into practice. I think the biggest challenge for any marketeer is this eternal so measurement is this horrible intractable conundrum you end up sitting sitting on your lap all the way through uh, especially across the two disciplines of what you simplistically call performance versus brand and i think you just need to be uh, again sensitive pragmatic that all of these things play a part and you need there is no answer to there's no one answer to how much should i invest in brand How do I think about performance marketing attribution? You have to solve that problem for your business and the uh, and the goals of how you want to use marketing. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, you obviously have such a better vantage point, but to me, it feels like there's this huge, um, you know, 20, 40 year trend, the emergence of data and measurement. And then there's this massive left versus right brain conundrum. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> And then I guess the next trend to me feels like, you know, we're moving away from the brand era to the product era and all of a sudden product is growth and, you know, marketeers are product managers and we're mixing up disciplines. Um, yeah. Like really the product is, yeah. The product experience is your brand. And I think previously they thought them as like product and market marketing are two separate streams, never cross the streams, but they're so intertwined in terms of how you can grow a business. Um, and you should think about investment across all of these pretty uh, as just an opportunity cost in terms of where you deploy capital. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a powerful point. We we always discuss this virtuous circle of you know really high customer satisfaction, powering the entire business, creating moat, um, driving retention, referrals, and ultimately you know top line, bottom line growth. And the challenge always is this: the point you just made. Like, if you have one pound, do you put it in? Where do you put it? Next? ATL? Yeah. <laughs> do you put it in performance, or do you put it in stake in our case, or better boxes, or you know, sustainability? I put, put it in stake. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's really, really fun. I love these topics. And going back on the on onto the leadership point, what have you learned about yourself that you really, really enjoy that gives you massive energy? And I guess, what have you learned about, you know, the stuff that potentially is a weakness that gives you less energy? So, my Myers-Briggs is is ISFP, very I, uh, so very introverted, um, which I guess is probably why I I like just curling up with a book. I think there's a great quote about reading that it's the, uh, the, the fruitful miracle of communication in the midst of solitude and for like a six-year-old it was it was definitely that and you know I was like like I said sort of deeply introverted I, I really did not enjoy talking to people I'd probably rather be able to talk to animals than people so this leadership journey was a very you know explicit and difficult sort of growth period of me having to be, be extroverted in terms of or traditionally extroverted in terms of standing in front of people being confident in meetings I found all those things I had to explicitly test myself push myself to do and it gets nowadays people are like huh you're an introvert you're like the you know you're always out there you always talk to people and I'm like it is a deeply energy zapping thing for me to do uh, in terms of being able to stand up and and be incredibly confident and give people that sense of belief so that was a lot of what my journey was about in terms of my personal leadership so it kind of answers both in terms of where I get energy and where I don't I love um, my problem is I love solving difficult problems with smart people which gives me so much buzz I just love cracking cracking the code but you have to learn when to lead and when to do and I think that's the thing I'm 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 going on this sort of latter journey of making sure I enable people to do that themselves and come to me when they need uh, support and what have you learned about like high performance teams and what conditions kind of um, you know constitute high performance um, teams or, or, or for them to strive? What's your take on teams? I think they have to have a sense of purpose as a group. I, I, I have a strong belief that uh, that sense of identity uh, as a team. You know, I think a lot of the very sort of um, you know clear objectives, aligned with the mission. I think that's. Um, sort of the bread and butter of how most people see it i think you need to enable leaders within your team to be inspiring for their team and set their own vision rather than sort of that's being delegated up to you uh, you know i think within my team there are like sub my old teams at least like subcultures almost where they have their own philosophy but there's a shared broader philosophy with how i i see the world i always tell the team to be like kind to each other and look after each other and i think that enables them to make sure when things are difficult, they sort of really gel together as a group. They just need that recognition internally and ex- and also externally of how good they are keeps them motivated to get better. 
I'd love to understand how you think about operating model. And what I mean is, is I effectively mean, how do you get teams to work um, cross-functionally to collaborate? Are you embedding technology into all your functions, i.e. tribes, squads, guilds, whatever you call them? Um, and the reason why I'm asking is, is like literally over the last four weeks, I got asked this question by mm. probably seven companies. And if I look at Gusto, one of the biggest, biggest unlocks of our success has been, you know, cracking the operating model and to constantly evolve it. There's not a single book on the topic. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. You know, and every year we had to change the corporate governance, the operating model structure. It's a very, very evolving beast. So what have you learned about that um, at Secret Escapes? Yeah, so I think... Like you say, no, by the time you've got an, especially within marketing, a model that works, it stops working. So like it takes you, so you know, often debates within marketing specifically, pre the sort of growth concept and tribes and squads was centralized, decentralized, local, global. And, you know, at eBay, it flip-flop between all permutations on a uh, sort of three-month or six-month basis. Just It was just like this reorg lottery, like which way, which way, <laughs> they're throw the dice up and everyone's going to move to Zurich. At, I think as marketing became clearly reliant on technology, I do believe that there needs to be a very strong, uh, to enable marketeers to um, continue to innovate and drive value, they need access to product and technology. And I think that's a model we were moving towards at Secretscapes, but I think um, we had always operated in a very sort of, this is the marketing organization this is product and this is technology and i think it's quite hard to pivot once you've had that sort of heritage and we've did a lot of tests to try and embed squads across and i think it, it always hinted that that was a good direction to go coming into this organization it's their sort of bread and butter and it's it does resonate that very clear almost autonomous teams with access to all everything they need to deliver their goals is hugely valuable and often for marketing organizations they need access to product and tech yeah i think it's a powerful point and ultimately what you do is you push decision making and prioritization of the huge backlog into the front line and therefore yes, exactly. closer to the customer and and to me that that is really sensible so i'm fascinated to see how how you find um wise in that respect yeah and um, um, can i ask you a question of course so i love food and i've got like lots of views on both like it as a part of society and like you know my personal enjoyment of cooking uh, what what was your drive to try like what to try and solve this like what problem did you feel like you wanted to solve when you started gusto so really really personal problem i lived in california i graduated from high school in california i have family in california who are yeah. hardcore food entrepreneurs um wow, okay. they failed more often than they succeeded but on <laughs> balance they've created a really amazing lifestyle and they're now in their early well late 60s um but they've had so much success and i absolutely looked up to them when i lived there and, and still do and they kept on pushing me, Timo, why are you working in a hedge fund? Why are you working in <laughs> finance? You know, follow your passion yeah. for food and entrepreneurship and technology. And so I looked at myself and I looked at kind of the problems I'm facing. You know, I worked super long hours. Even if I had the time to look up recipes, I couldn't, you know, yeah. find all the ingredients, go shopping. 
Um, I wasted half the stuff. The recipes didn't turn out so well. Yeah. Um, so I, I really like looked at myself, somebody who's kind of late, late twenties, um, works really long hours, but wants to cook a healthy diet, mm -hmm. really tasty food, cares about sustainability, quality. And so the idea of Gusto was really born out of this idea of let's build a better society that has no food waste. Let's take it from 40% to 1%. And this is win, win, win. And create a model that's so much more, not just sustainable, but convenient and, and tasty and better price point. What I got completely wrong is I focused on people like myself, whereas right. people who cook every single day mm. are probably a bit closer to 40, you know, maybe yep. young kids um, living really busy lives, but, you know, not ever compromising on kind of the, the quality, the taste, the health um, benefits of food. So we, I guess we changed the proposition slightly towards um, these types of populations, but the basic assumptions I had back then and the problem I saw back then, you know, that fundamentally somebody has to disintegrate the grocery supply chain and for the next <laughs> 50 years, you know, supermarkets are no longer fit for purpose. I still massively believe in today and, and today I've got a thousand times more conviction, uh, obviously, um, than, than eight years ago, uh, but it hasn't changed that much. Yeah, that's amazing to hear because it's just, I absolutely adore, I love your product. I, I don't personally use it, but I think it's an amazing way for people to get access like to interesting, affordable, healthy, and like you say, sustainable. Often, historically, you couldn't have all four, right? There'll be some horrible trade-off and uh, yeah, and for people just to start enjoying food. It's, I'll um it's, it's I'll call the marketing team. We got we to gotta convert you somehow. <laughs> <laughs> um. And talk me through, I mean, Secret Escapes has raised so much money and there must have been really difficult, I guess, situations around funding rounds, any learnings, um, board dynamics you learned from. What's your kind of learning on that side? So I think what was interesting was towards the end of my period, we brought on a new chair. So she, she was um, the CEO of WH Smith. And she was very proactive about engaging with this beyond just the people in the boardroom um, and, and actually engaging with the leadership team. And it felt like it was a really good dynamic for her regular catch-ups for her to, for both very sort of um, two-way conversation about what was going on in your discipline and your domain. And for her to, for her to answer very transparently questions about what was on top in her mind. I thought, you know, that interaction felt, especially in, you know, she really steered the ship through the pandemic challenges we faced, uh, obviously working really closely with Tom and Alex. And I think that relationship was really inspiring to see that sort of the steady hand uh, between the three of them to guide the business through the, those um, challenges. And personally, I don't have a huge amount of interaction with the board, but I felt like that the, ch the chair role can be incredibly powerful. A really powerful point. Um, thank you for sharing. And then, so you just joined WISE. Uh, obviously, all the interviews have been remotely done um, or yes. virtually done. How are you feeling about it? It's sad we're not in the office. The team are so good. And you can see how they would uh, really be buzzing and riffing and, you know, throwing ideas on whiteboards in the office. You know, I'm just longing to get back into, and obviously they're in Shoreditch in the T-building, so it's a pretty cool office. I don't know what it's a very big organization that acts like lots of small organizations that somehow telepathically but obviously explicitly communicate with each other 
which is just incredible to see. Caliber of people and the level of drive is also very apparent and uh, level of trust that uh, senior leaders place in um, the organization to stand up and talk about what they're doing and own it is incredible. So also the mission resonates with me. I've worked in fintech, I guess you call it fintech, in finance, financial services business before. And you discover that, and I vowed after my last stint never to go back. I was like, I am done. <laughs> because you discover that financial education is the nemesis of profit maximizing for those type of businesses. It's really well put, it's, yeah. It's like being nice is very low margin and it's very depressing actually on the other side to realize how people approached um, credit cards and, and credit limits and overdraft fees and PPI and, uh, and debt management, all life, how life insurance works. It's all horrible and the loser always usually is um, the consumer mm. who is least informed and to come somewhere where Effectively, they're returning the consumer surplus back to the user. Incredible transparency. It's just very inspiring to see. Yeah, makes sense. And if you fast forward by 10 years from oh now... I'm sorry? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm terrified. Fast forward. <laughs> 10 years from now. I mean, just, just, you know, on a personal level, if you, you know, think about the next 10, 20 years, what does success look like one day for you? I like helping other people. I would love to be uh, having supported other businesses to grow in some sort of fashion. I just, I just love seeing really smart people either working for me or just getting to know them um, in terms of their journeys. Um, and I would just love to be part of their story in some way. In like 10 years, I might just be a bit old and creaky to be getting my hands dirty again. <laughs> um, but I can just see there are just such an amazing i think of like these cohorts of people i've had the sort of privilege to have crossed paths with uh, throughout my career and i just want to continue to do that um going forward i don't see myself as a personally as an entrepreneur myself to set up my own thing but i feel like i bring you know some domain expertise and hopefully a bit of belief uh, that other people can uh, use whether you explore that via board seats or angel investment, um, you, you'd add so much value. There's a quote from an entrepreneur, which is like, call it fate, call it luck, call it karma. I believe things happen for a reason. Mm. That, that was, uh, I think, Peter Venkman from the Ghostbusters. But <laughs> like, you just don't know. And I think you have to like maximize the probability of serendipitous things happening. And that's in your control. And I think good things will happen if you are uh, sort of kind to your community, kind to your uh, employees and just, you know, contribute back into the ecosystem, which has been hugely contributed to my career to date. I, I totally subscribe to that idea. Um, I've got no idea how it looks in 20, 30 <laughs> years, but I, I'm a really positive person. I'm like super optimistic. I'm high energy. Opportunities arise like everywhere, left and right. If I'm fortunate enough to lead this company in 20 years, absolutely amazing wow. you know if not then um i'll have a different um you know way of spending my my life um i plan on being productive until i'm 85 or 90 years <laughs> old so you know life life is really fun or work is really fun and makes yeah, life definitely. so much richer and you had so much success in life what do you think was luck and what are your true true super strengths 
people often say you somehow stumble wander around and you get lucky all the time and maybe i do i just feel like so my i guess you know this is all like the interview question i got from uh during my my transfer wise like i'm very calm and pragmatic but also very excited about solving hard problems and i think that energizes people around me i hope and that sort of belief builds that belief between a small group a bigger group and then hopefully the organization and i do believe in like maintaining very good just kind and warm relationships with people for long periods of time and i think that always increases the chance of uh, something awesome happening so i think you know i am people are like oh you're you're very analytical or you're very commercial i think i just like seeing all the strands of a problem assembling it in your mind being able to like synthesize that and give that to someone to try to help them solve the problem i think that's what i'm quite good at yeah and there's probably nothing more powerful than than leaning into whatever the toughest problem is and and asking you know tons of questions i find exactly. it super inspiring to see in other people um and it's so incredibly value adding and everyone has a different perspective um so now it's a powerful point yeah i think most problems require like multi lenses against it to really solve it in a sustainable way. You can solve a problem very quickly using like one looking at one surface of the problem. And and you do need great people lots of great people in the room to look at it from all the surfaces. Yeah, and I think, you know, once once you move from startup phase to scale-up phase and I, I mean you clearly have worked in huge organizations um, by any standard now, but sure. huge yeah. scale-ups, it's really about succeeding slowly not failing fast and that requires you know a very very good focus on first order second order consequences exactly, exactly. and issues and problem solving and i find it fascinating i'm still sometimes catching myself running at 100 miles doing you know 50 meetings um but ultimately all the value is coming from thinking deeply slowing down you know thinking about fewer tougher problems exactly um, and just yeah, absolutely. The first order, second order, third order complexities of problems require that that sort of taking a breath and really thinking about it hard. Look, it's been super fun having you on this podcast. I Thank know. you so it's... much for having um you know for taking the time and, and showing so much humility part. and yeah, talking to me. Um I think it was better than watching an episode of the West Wing. <laughs> I'll take it I'll take it <laughs> no no like I uh, really appreciate you having me on